Today is the fifth anniversary of Redeeming Grace Fellowship coming into existence. Our first gathering was on September 20th, 2015, as we joined together to worship the Lord as a body for the very first time. And so what we're going to do today is celebrate. But the question is, how do you celebrate something like this? And I think the right answer is, we preach the Word. We are going to delight in being immersed in God's self-revelation. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 136. As you know, we're currently between books of the Bible. Typically, our normal pattern of, of preaching is that we start at chapter 1, verse 1 of some book, and we continue on carrying through until the Lord brings us to the end of that book. However, at this point, we are enjoying some one-off sermons in between series as we make our way through the Scripture a little bit more at random. Now, when considering what passage to preach for a service like this one, there were so many that came to mind, so many where I thought this would be perfect. There are so many things that have been instrumental in my life in the last five years, and I know that have been instrumental in the life of this congregation. However, I want you to know, generally speaking, that is not how I decide what to preach. The Lord does that for me. I don't normally take temperature of what's going on in the congregation and say, you know, let's, uh, let's go that way this week. No, the Lord, by His grace, shows us what we need to hear. And it's amazing how often I will preach the text that is in front of me and someone will say, that is precisely what I needed this week. And I can only say, that's just a God thing because He's the one who is guiding us through the Word. So generally speaking, I don't simply seek to find a band-aid from the Word to apply to circumstances. The Lord uses His Word to build us and strengthen us in Him. However, what I would like to do this week is to consider a very simple and very practical, very significant reminder of the core element of what it looks like to be a believer. The Bible has a variety of ways of teaching us. Sometimes chapters are dense with line after line after theology and doctrine. Think, for example, maybe Romans 8 or Romans 9. Others are pressing home a point through the presentation of a narrative. Think things like the story of Jonah or the life of Elijah or Moses. And then there are many others that give you nothing new, nothing surprising, and Psalm 36 is one of those. On the surface, it seems like a very basic recitation of the simplest of doctrines. It's Sunday school level truth. It's what we teach to our first grade children and expect them to know it as truth. The chapter is structurally simple and theologically elementary. But God's system for Christian maturation is not designed to operate like we are getting spiritual promotions. You don't just graduate from the basics. Today, God is going to use this chapter to draw our attention back to one of the most important and fundamental aspects of the Christian faith. As you know, the book of Psalms is a Holy Spirit-inspired songbook that was originally designed to be sung in patterns of worship. And the words that I'm about to read were designed to be sung in an antiphonal manner. Now, that's just a fancy word of saying call and response. There would be one worship leader who would announce, either by memory or by reading, the first line, and the entire congregation would respond with the refrain. So what I'm going to do today is to ask that as I read the word, 
that you participate with me in the reading of his word so that we might go through this text as it was originally intended to be experienced. We are going through this word in just a moment, and I'm going to ask that every time I will read the first line of the stanza, you will reply, for his steadfast love endures forever. Just to make sure that we are all on the same page, both literally and figuratively, uh, we are going to make sure we are all using the same Bible translation. It will be on the screen here for you, coming from the English Standard Version. So I, again, will read the first line, and I will ask that as a congregation, you read out the second. So I want to make sure that's available here for us. We'll begin with verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To Him who alone does great wonders. To Him who by understanding made the heavens. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh, give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that today as we gather around your word, you would indeed Reveal to us that your steadfast love endures forever. Father God, I ask that there would be no sense in this congregation of a simple awareness with no delight in this fact. Father, I pray that you would give our hearts a passion, a fire that is built upon the truth that you love us. Lord, knowing that we have been loved is the greatest motivator of all of the things we are called to do. So, Father God, I pray that we would see your love today, that we would not view it as unnecessary or as elemental or elementary, but that we would see it for what it is, the great 
application of your eternal attributes in favor towards us. God, we pray that you would help us today to be delighting in your Son, both this morning as we are gathered and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a parent, I find myself repeating things that I say over and over and over again. Parents, are, are you with me here? Amen. Yeah. Uh, how many times should I have to say, don't lick things? Once. I should only have to say it once, but for some reason, I have to continually repeat this seemingly obvious reality that you should not put things on your tongue just because you can. My children constantly seem to forget, and as much as I love them, I need to graciously and lovingly continually remind them, do not lick things. The Bible never wastes words. It could seem as though this repetition is extreme, but the Bible is intentionally designing this in such a way that it will grab your attention and it will scream through all of the billion things that are vying for your attention so that you will realize that God's love truly does endure forever. We are so quick to forget that reality. Every time a believer sins, it is ultimately rooted back to this fact, they have forgotten that his love towards them endures forever. But the Lord has graciously given us passages like this one to help set our feet back on solid ground. Now you'll notice that there's only one command in this entire chapter and it is repeated in verse 1, 2, 3, and again at the very end in verse 26. It's like a sandwich here of the chapter. And the one command that bookends this chapter for us is this, give thanks to the Lord. I want to ask the question, what does that really look like? What does it actually look like when you apply this to your daily life? How are you supposed to carry out a command which says to give thanks to someone that is not in front of you in a physical form in this very moment? Part of the reason that it is difficult to answer that question in our modern society is that you probably say thank you a hundred times a day without actually feeling anything toward the person you are thanking. It has become nothing more than a verbal Pavlovian response mechanism that our culture has designed so that we can be nice to each other. Somebody opens the door for you, and you say, thanks. Somebody hands you food when you go through the drive-thru, thanks. Somebody says, God bless you when you sneeze. You don't even turn around to look at them and you just say, thanks. You say thank you, but then you leave that individual and you forget that they even exist. There is no lasting gratitude for that person. You don't remember what their face was like. You don't remember that they have done something greatly kind for you. You walk away and you forget immediately. This is not the kind of gratitude the Holy Spirit is commanding in this text. He is requiring from us genuine heartfelt, overflowing of thankfulness that is at the very core of what God intended for us to do and to be. Consider Romans chapter 1. There, Paul exp explains the spiritual anatomy of a human being. And part of what he is doing is he's doing like an autopsy where he cuts down the very center of the core of a human being and explains what goes wrong in every person that leads them down a path of rebellion against God. Look at verses 18 through 23 with me. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Pause for a moment. Why is the information, the awareness, the knowledge of God available to them? Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, we're going to focus on that in a moment in terms of nature. So, they are without excuse. Notice a single word there that is very substantial. It is the word perceived. His divine nature has been clearly not just displayed, but perceived by every human heart. Therefore, no one has an excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But, or instead of that, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Follow the argument that Paul is making here. He says that everyone knows God exists. Yet, our natural, sinful human response to God is not to give thanks to Him. It is to instead look at everything He has done and say... I want nothing to do with you. Therefore, it says that our minds become futile and our hearts become darkened. That is why we turn to anything and everything else that we can find to turn that into an object of worship. Paul is absolutely right to correlate a lack of thankfulness to our sinful suppression of the knowledge of God's will. Just look at the first sin that was ever committed. And let's compare that to what we're seeing in Psalm 136. Eve had everything. In the garden, she had everything she could ever desire. Life was perfect. Not only was she perfect in that she was sinless, but she had a perfect relationship with her God, and she had a perfect relationship with her husband that God had given to her, and she had a perfect relationship with everything else that existed. There was nothing to fear. There was no cause for worry or anxiety. There was no trouble on the horizon. There was no one that would ever sin against her. Everything was perfect for her. Yet she did not do what Psalm 136 commands. She did not have a heart of thankfulness towards the Lord. Just look at the first sin. When we compare that to Psalm 136... It begins by telling us that God is worthy of our thanks. Why? Because of His identity. Because of who He is. It begins by telling us that He is worthy for, of our gratitude because of His nature. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. That alone, if we just took that one sentence, would be enough cause for us to say we should at all times be thankful to God because He is good. If someone is good, it means they do good. It is based in his character. Everything that he does flows out of his goodness. 
It continues, give thanks to the God of gods. This is not to say that other deities are actually deities. It is to say that he is the true God who crushes and stomps out every other false god that we in our own hearts create. Give thanks to the Lord of, the lo of lords, the master of all things. He has every right to be uh, receiving thanks from us. And verse 26 adds, give thanks to the God of heaven, displaying his location, where he rules from. By right of his perfect character and by right of his supreme authority, he is worthy of all of creation's undying, undying fealty and unending adoration. Yet, we are often easily shaken in our view of God, just like Eve was in the garden. The devil's approach was not to deny the existence of God. No, she knew God was there. She knew God walked with her in the garden. His approach was to do something much more sinister. He impugned God's character, and he distorted God's commands. Did God really say that? He said to her. He just doesn't want you to be like him, he argued. God is trying to withhold something good from you. He's given you all of this stuff, but he hasn't given you that one tree in the center of the garden. You should have that too. Don't be thankful. You deserve that, Eve. No, God has something greater that he's taken from you. It's the awareness of good and evil, Eve. You deserve to be like him, but he is suppressing you and holding you down. He doesn't want you to have what you could rightfully become. Just eat the fruit. It's the same argumentation that we receive from the world all the time. When we are tempted, we are hearing these same arguments from the devil. Eve was not thankful. She was not content with all that God had created and placed around her in the garden. She was not thankful with every other tree. Every tree was given to her except one. And so she went for the one that she was told no. Consider what Psalm 36, 136 tells us about creation's role in our thanksgiving. You'll notice that each of these lines begins with the word to. This is to indicate that this is the God that our hearts should be thanking and inclined to give thanks to. It says, to him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule the night. You might be wondering, why I am belaboring this, why I am drawing such a tight line between Psalm 136 and Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and that is quite simply because this is all Genesis language. This is creation reality being put on display. He is using some of the direct quotes from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to declare that God is displaying His love in creation. Imagine that. Before God created Adam and Eve, he was designing all of these things and putting them into existence so that he might display his love towards us. Creation and all that he has designed is being used by him to show a kindness of heart, an affection for those that he has created. His love endures forever, and it is observable by nature of the fact that He created nature itself. So what should we do? Eve should look around her and see, God has given me so much. We see His power. We see His provision. We see His love for us in all that He has made. 
yet her heart was not thankful. Eve was not responding appropriately. Now, Psalm 119, I'm sorry, Psalm 19 verse 1 reminds us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. God is screaming through the created order, look at me, look to me. I am worthy of your love. I deserve your adoration. A genuinely thankful heart is simply a person who has an unwavering Godward focus, someone who sees that God is truly good and he has done everything in creation, he has done everything in history because of that goodness. A truly thankful person means that your heart is pursuing the God of heaven with delight. Now, I want to make it clear, all God is telling you to do in this chapter is have a heart response of thankfulness. This is the polar opposite of a works-based approach to the Christian life. In Psalm 50, God excoriated the Israelites for their approach to their, their religious duties. They were required to offer sacrifices. Yet he says, your burnt offerings are continually before me, but I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. They were doing the right stuff in terms of taking the animal and cutting its throat and lighting it on fire and letting it burn until there was nothing left. They were doing what they were told to do. Their problem was not a neglect of worship. Their problem was a perversion of worship. They were doing the right things outwardly, but inwardly, they thought they were doing God a favor. That is when God informs them exactly what kind of offering is acceptable. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He is not saying, do not bring me animals. He is saying that the heart behind it matters. True worship is not merely measured by your actions but by the motivations behind those actions. Let me ask you, are you genuinely thankful to God? Is your heart actually filled with gratitude for Him? When you sang these songs earlier today, were you drawn to the Savior and blown away once again by His mercy? Was your mind being renewed with the fundamental truth that His love for you is limitless, boundless, infinite, and eternal? Are you not thankful that even though God's knowledge of you is exhaustive, His love for you is inexhaustible? Just as we were reading earlier and I was asking you to respond, the initial response for His steadfast love endures forever was much louder the first time you said it than the 26th time you said it. That seems to be the, the movement, the direction of our zeal, it wanes, it declines, and unless it is inflamed by the Spirit of God through His Word and through the counsel of others and through the worship of God in the body, then it grows cold. Before moving on, I simply want to note that although God's love is everlasting, it is eternal, it never ends, it is not universal. Although God, God does have a general love for all of His creation, he has a unique love for His chosen people. And the love that is being hammered into our hearts in this chapter is not going to ex be experienced by all people in eternity. There are some who instead will be separated from this love and will experience nothing but God's wrath. For those who are unbelievers, 
those who have never come to trust in the grace of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, this chapter is not applicable. Now, you might ask, how can you say that, Pastor? It doesn't seem to make some kind of a distinction here in the text. It says that God's love is steadfast and it extends forever in the future. It does not say only for God's people, does it? And I would say, you would be right in saying that it sounds universal unless you examine two very important details in this chapter. First, notice that in this very chapter, it speaks about God pouring out wrath on his enemies. He notes the striking down of Egypt and the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies who got destroyed under the Red Sea. It focuses in on the death of the kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og, king of Bashan. It's, it focuses in on all of their nations as, they were con- as the Israelites were conquesting the land. It's clear that the love of God was not set identically upon those people as it was upon the chosen people of Israel. Many times in this chapter, it specifically focuses in on the people of God or the Israelites. Rather, his love was not spread across all people in the same fashion. So secondly, we see that there is a decidedly particular group of people who are the recipients of this love in verses 23 through 24, for example. It says, It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. Notice there are two categories of people in this list, us and our foes. Here, the love of God that is everlasting is on us. It is not directed to the foes. So if you are here as an unsaved individual, please understand that the love of God is absolutely free. There is nothing that you can do to earn it. There is nothing you can do to deserve it. There is no way that you could work for the rest of eternity to afford it or attain it. It is only achieved as a gift. You must understand that you have fallen short of the glory of God and that you have sinned against Him as the only holy creature in the universe. You have no claim on heaven because you have fallen short of the glory of God. So what are we to do? Come to the end of yourself and see that God provides what God demands. He demands that you be perfect. There is no sinner who will enter into heaven with any single sin on his record. One sin is enough to eliminate you for all of eternity from accessing his holy presence. He demands perfection and simply put, you are not perfect. But God does provide what God demands, and He has provided a perfect substitute for sinners like you and me in His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to die in our place and to pay our sin debt. It is Jesus who has been raised and who lives today to give sinners like you and me salvation. So give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. It is primarily observable at the cross. Please take note of what is being done here in verses 10 through 22. The entire section is dedicated to looking back at a specific events in Israel's history and being reminded that those were not just random moments that unfurled arbitrarily. The hand of God is seen in His work through delivering His people. This focus on deliverance is the largest portion of the chapter by far. 
In a very similar way, we focus on deliverance at this church consistently. We focus on the gospel every week, and we do this because it is the greater deliverance. Paul refers to this in uh, this gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 as being of first importance. This message is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. The gospel is simply retelling the work of God to bring about a new exodus, where the greater Moses took a rebellious, undeserving, idolatrous heart like mine and like yours, and he graciously and miraculously did what you and I could never do by freeing us from a slave master called sin. And if you are a Christian, that is your story. That, in a nutshell, is your testimony. The details, the circumstances, the dates, the locations, all of that is different for each one of us. But the reality of the gospel is unchanging. This focus on deliverance is not placed in the chapter haphazardly. It was a constant reminder to the people of Israel that the only reason they were even in the promised land was because God intervened. And the only reason that you are in the family of God is because God intervened. He sought you and he bought you with the redeeming blood of Jesus. So what do we do? We stand fast on the gospel and it directs our heart to a place of genuine, absolute, unending thanksgiving. There is no way someone could live their life with their mind set on this reality and respond with a heart that says, I want nothing to do with you. It produces thanksgiving. But I want you to notice that this, this psalm also calls our attention back to other events in Israel's history. We all, already mentioned, for example, the victory over the Amorites with uh, Sihon, their king. By looking back at what God has done, it causes us to observe His love in action. It could be very easy to pick up a history book. In fact, most of you probably hated history when you were growing up. I know most young people didn't like it when they were in school. Part of the reason it is so frustrating to look at history is because they are missing the most central element of all of it, that God is the one maneuvering every piece on that chessboard, that God is the central figure in history and its primary actor as well. Here we look back at history, and we see that it points to the unfolding of God's love for His people. How do I know that God loves me? Look what He's done. Look at how He has carried us through. Look at how He has preserved us and protected us. Israel, this tiny little nation that was like a political football being passed back and forth between the Egyptians and the and Babylonians and the Assyrians and you name it, the Philistines, there's group after group of violent, warring countries that God would raise up and then God would destroy. And yet, in the midst of every one of them, He guarded His people. And now, He does the same for the church, where the people of God is no longer a biological entity. It is not passed down from generation to generation of one bloodline. It is passed down as people proclaim this gospel, and it is going throughout every nation around the world as people hear this gospel and believe. What I would like to do for the next few minutes is simply do what this psalmist is doing. And I would like to look back at just a few of the ways that God has shown His love to us over the past five years. First, let's talk about growth. The Lord has done much to help us grow, both numerically and spiritually. Numerically speaking, we have gone from 
25 initial charter members, several of whom are no longer living in New York, and he has changed that number where we have grown to 60 members as of this past Sunday. He has also grown us in our knowledge and our awareness of his love as we have walked together through his word. We have studied the Bible together at men's retreats, ladies' retreats, Bible studies, community groups, uh, our conferences that we have done so often until COVID kind of ended our regular pattern of doing them. By God's grace, we have had opportunity to dig into the scriptures together over and over. But let's just consider Sunday mornings. The Lord has allowed us to walk through together the entire book of Mark and the book of Genesis and the book of Colossians and Habakkuk and 2 Timothy and 2 John and 3 John. And we are halfway through, halfway through both Isaiah and the book of Acts. Not to mention that we have been able to preach at least one sermon from every single book in the New Testament except for Jude. I don't know what happened with Jude, but he kind of got left out of this cycle. But the Lord has given us opportunity to learn and to grow, and we have seen that produce fruit in lives in people here in the congregation. Why has God done this? Because His steadfast love endures forever. And the Lord has also been abundantly kind to us in causing us to grow in a different way. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a kind reward. Over the past five years, we have had the honor of welcoming into our family many children. Adeline Wolford, uh, we've invited Isabella Olaya just recently, Zoe Impert, Davey and Jude Alquist, Ruthie Hawkins, Gavin Heifert, Mordecai and Caspian Bunch, Penelope Holt, Sam and Theo Herman, Zachary Oliva. Is he back there? We're talking about you. And also Chi-Chi Shrek over in Italy our missionary's little boy. And that's only going to increase as the Imperts and the Lees and the Aherns and the Wolfords and the Shreks, they're all expecting another baby within the next six months. And who knows, only the Lord and maybe some of you, it's possible that there are other babies already cooking in the womb that I just don't know about. Honestly, it kind of gets hard to keep track. Uh, we just keep growing. The Lord has been gracious to us. Why? Because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The Lord has also done a great work in bringing people together in marriage. Well, pause for a second. Reese just missed it by two months, right? July 7th, right? You were almost born in this congregation, but we count it. We'll count it today. We're so glad that Reese is with us. The Lord has also done a great work in bringing people together in marriage in our church. Uh, this has been a huge blessing to us. In Mark chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Now, this is an important reminder that marriage is a lot more than just some kind of earthly contract that was created by societies or civilizations. God is doing something mysterious in heaven that binds two people together during this life. And so far in this church, we have been so blessed to see four young couples join together in holy matrimony. First, I'll note Ray and Rebecca. They're our most recent. Ray and Rebecca McGann. Uh, John and Lindsay Holt, they were our first. Now, what's really interesting to note is uh, both of these couples met and fell in love as part of our church. Now, we're kind of cheating because uh, John and Lindsay also met and fell in love at GCA where they worked together, but we're going to claim it today, okay? Uh, also, Mike and Christine Marciano and Chris and Nicole Ahern were married here in this church. Of course, 
Mike and Christine have moved now to the border of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. But the Lord has done a great thing in bringing them together as well. And may the Lord continue to build each of these marriages and build many more in the future as he continues to hold us fast. Thank God that we have many good examples of what a godly Christian marriage looks like that we can set forth for those who are entering into marriage for the first time, which for those of us who are married, we know can be a minefield of sin if we don't know what the Lord has called us to do. And why has the Lord done this? Because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And we have seen the Lord answer abundantly in terms of our prayers. Let's remember just a few of the major moments of prayer life in this church. When we first started gathering, uh, for those who were with us will remember, we were gathering in a basement, uh, and we scoured the island searching for any building that could A, hold us, and B, that we could afford, which turned out to be one building, uh, which is this one. And by the grace of God, the Lord brought us right here where He desired us to be for this time. And He has provided us with a place of consistency and dependability. And as I have spoken with many church planters over the last five years, the thing that constantly comes up is their frustration with their location of worship. They constantly have to tear up, uh, tear everything down and put it back up every Sunday. Uh, sometimes people will get a note on a Friday or a Saturday saying they are no longer welcome to gather there, and they now have to meet in their apartment for six months while they look for the next place. It is difficult. It is a massive challenge, and the Lord has been truly kind to us to grant us this location at this time, for His steadfast love endures forever. Now, do you remember praying for several months for Rocky Wolford and Eric DeJoya as Rocky donated about 70% of his liver to save the life of his brother in Christ? And the Lord answered those prayers, restoring Eric to stability and to full health and causing Rocky's liver which was the majority of it given to another human being to completely regrow. I mean, God is gracious to us. And not only did the Lord work mightily through the medical side of this event, He also gave our church a lasting visual aid to understand Christ-like love that we are supposed to share sacrificially between brethren. God was also faithful to work out every detail of that very life-threatening situation because His steadfast love endures forever. We were also blessed with an answer to prayer as the Herman family pursued adoption for little Samuel. God, in His providence, caused them to be unable for a time to have a child so that the Lord would direct them towards adoption. And by the grace of God, in His providence, He determined that there would be a child born on the opposite side of our planet that He wanted to grow up in this congregation. And by the grace of God, He brought that individual, this little boy, this precious child here to be part of our family. And it seems that as soon as he did, he gave that little boy a present. He gave him a little brother. So the Lord has brought not only Sam, but also Theo into our lives. And the Lord answered those prayers. And we saw in that prayer that God's answer, his timing is perfect. And his wisdom is so much greater than our own. Please understand that the Lord has done this because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And we've seen the Lord answer an abundance of other prayers as well. Consider the Massapequa Church of God. We joined together simply using the space in the building. Yet the Lord allowed us to merge with the Massapequa Church of God. In doing so, the Lord grew our congregation and He also gave this faithful body of believers a home and a family and a pastor during a season of great change. 
and the Lord has unified the two of us so that we can greatly say, we worship one Lord as one body. And the Lord is the one who paved every avenue for this to take place. Why? Because His steadfast love endures forever. And the Lord has also allowed us to engage globally with the gospel beyond our own borders of this little wall and beyond the borders of our nation as we support those who operate like the tip of the spear, serving by preaching the gospel where it has not yet been named. By the grace of God, we've been able to help equip and send out Rachel Wessel, who is a shining beacon of the gospel to the people of Mexico. We've been able to watch her grow in her ability to faithfully serve both when she is here and also especially cross-culturally to the nations. And we have seen the Lord answer many prayers as she has sought to build His kingdom, for His steadfast love does indeed endure forever. And we were able to adopt and support the Shrek family as official missionaries here for our church. When their church in Pennsylvania, the one that sent him out many years ago, I think 16 years ago now, uh, when, when their church sent him out to serve in the mission field of Italy, and now this church has died, both literally and figuratively, as the people have aged and they finally closed their door for the last time. And I am so thankful that the Lord has allowed us to be their home church, the one that they come to as their home base when they return to the States. I am so thankful that the Lord has allowed us to take some small part in supporting their ministry in a place that missionary sending agencies call the missionary graveyard, where most missionaries don't last two years. And by the grace of God, they continue faithfully seeking to plant churches in a land that has so few. I am so thankful that our church has been enriched to be able to see and share in their trials and their joys as God answers prayer after prayer. Why does He do that? Because His steadfast love endures forever. The mission field is a, a, definitely a picture of God's love, is it not? That He is pursuing the nations. And now we also support Alejandro, who is uh, alongside of his new wife, by the way, Micaela. We're so thankful that the Lord has joined them together as they serve together in the capital region on the campuses of these colleges that are so opposed to the gospel. And their efforts have been primarily reaching people who live in places like the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Only the Lord knows what kind of spiritual legacy is going to blossom from these efforts. But it is very possible that 200 years from now, there will be thriving communities of Jesus followers in places like Thailand and Oman, because of the efforts of Alejandro proclaiming the gospel to an individual who came here for college for a year or two and who believed in the gospel and returned to their home nations and professed the name of Jesus and for generation after generation that continues to grow. It is very possible that 200 years from now, large groups of people will know and believe in Jesus Christ because of their efforts but will never know Alejandro's name and will certainly not know that we had any attachment to him. But the Lord is working together great things for His own namesake and mysteriously drawing all people from all ends of the earth into His kingdom. Why is He doing this? Because His steadfast love endures forever. Now what we could do is we could stay here recounting the millions of ways that God has shown Himself to be loving to us over the next months. I could just remain here until I can't have any more energy to stand. But I think the best way for us to do this is to go to a picnic together this afternoon and for us to talk about how God has answered our prayers this afternoon and to talk about what God has taught us and how He has grown us this afternoon where we share together in the fellowship and the bond of peace and announce, I am thankful because God has changed me in this way or that. God is still doing many great things. 
Uh, I'm thankful for the newest members that he has brought into our church. Just this past Sunday, uh, the Lee family was voted into membership. Hunter Schultz was voted into membership, among others. I'm thankful for all of the people who have come and joined our church as members and attenders over the past several years. Our newest visitor with us this morning, Mark, thank you for coming. I'm so glad that you're here. Please meet Mark before he goes. God is continuing to do great things for his namesake. As you remember God's work, I encourage you, let your heart be drawn to a place of rich, genuine thanksgiving, for He is worthy of your adoration. He is worthy of your gratitude. So as you soak in that thankfulness, remember that this same God who carried us this far, He's the same God that's going to carry us forward. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask that you would indeed open our understanding to realize once again that your steadfast love endures forever that it is boundless, it is limitless, it is never stopping and never ending. Help us, Lord, to recognize that we have been so greatly loved. Help us to understand that we are the recipients, undeserving recipients, of such immense grace that we will never cease to praise you. We ask all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.